I've had innumerable conversations with people who have a history of injustices, wounds. They've been hurt. They've been disappointed, let down. People have taken advantage of them. And there's some either uh, accumulation of or some point in their life, a defining moment where they decide, I don't believe in God anymore, or I cannot believe in God, or I won't believe in God because of fill in the blank. We can easily think of children who have been abused and victimized from an early age and they have prayed and begged to this God that they may not know that he would protect them at night. We can think of children growing up in a violent home fearing the wrath of a parent or the arguments between a husband and wife and and these little minds praying that mommy and daddy won't hurt each other, mommy and daddy won't divorce, mommy and daddy won't leave. In the teen years, when our emotions are so raw, the hormones are raging, we are uh, beside ourselves, we're almost an adult, but the coalescing of all that hormone energy, all that adolescence coming to age, all that our brain not quite functioning rightly, the disappointments, the losses, the traumas that hit in those years are especially difficult. And we pray and beg and bargain with God in ways only teenagers can imagine. And God doesn't come through, doesn't answer. Someone else gets the award. Someone else gets asked out. Someone else gets the guy, gets the girl. Someone else wins. Someone else is more popular. And the triangulation of relationships heightens it during the teen years. By the time you're a young adult and single, Perhaps in college you're making your way through the litany of what the universities are telling you or your world's telling you, and you encounter enough new information that not everybody believes what I was taught. And then you're challenged on your own for the first time, making your own decisions, many of them poor decisions. And you have to navigate and find your way. And again, that coalescing, it's a larger and larger snowball of experiences and how we view God. And we're looking for something. We're asking maybe good questions, maybe not so good questions, but we're looking, we're asking, we're seeking, we're trying to figure out. But bad things happen. Disappointments occur. Injustices haunt us. Having been a victim is hard to get away from. And then if you're single too long, you begin to doubt God. You pray for the husband, for the wife, and he doesn't provide. You think you've met the one, and he or she breaks your heart. Others get married and have children, and you're left behind, so to speak, and you're watching all your single friends go on and leave you in the side of the road, and you become disenfranchised and disenchanted, and God's not playing fair. And if you're a woman at that stage, you buy a cat. you're a guy you get involved in things that guys get involved with that don't get married and you begin to associate yourself with groups of people that aren't seeking God perhaps that aren't answering the right questions and then God doesn't come through again you get married and you can't have children you're infertile you get married and you have children and they break your heart you get married and you have children and they have complicated health issues friends of Cindy's and mine did last Friday put their 20 year old son and 23 year old daughter in the hands of surgeons to take 65% of that boy's liver and to put it into his sister. You don't think that's going to happen when you have little babies on your knee. They're doing well in God's kindness. 
and you struggle in your marriage, and you struggle financially, you struggle with health issues, you struggle with life, and again and again you look to God and you're trying to live in a fallen, flat world and asking God, where are you when I need you? Why haven't you come through for me? We pray for specific things. Sometimes they are, quote, answers, sometimes not. Sometimes it would be really nice to have a miracle, wouldn't it? Just a miracle. And for God to do something that would once and for all prove it. Somewhere in our American Christianity, the Western mindset has infused this notion, if then, if we do this, then this will follow. And it's, I think it's, it's almost like an imprint in the way we think about our Christianity. If I do this, then God will do that. We may never articulate it. We might not even process it. I would argue it is there. If I'm faithful and obedient, then God should, will, probably, likely take care of me. And unfortunately, it is not necessarily the case experientially, which would lead the question, is it true biblically? Scripture always trumps our experience, but nevertheless, experience is a powerful teacher. The study of Jonah would not be complete without looking briefly at a couple of New Testament passages, particularly where Jesus Christ talks about Jonah. If you're a note taker or a godly disciple growing in the word person, you might want to jot down a couple of verses. We'll look at a couple of these, but I'll repeat them many times so you can capture them. But we're going to be looking at Matthew 12, Matthew 16, and Luke 11. Matthew 12, Matthew 16, and Luke 11. Matthew 12, Matthew 16, and Luke 11. And I'll give you the specific verses as we approach those. Uh, Two times in the Gospel of Matthew, he captures where Christ speaks of Jonah. And once in the Gospel of Luke, Luke captures what Christ says about Jonah. And the context I want to set up begins in chapter 12 of Matthew. So if you have a New Testament or an electronic version of the Scripture, open it to Matthew 12, verse 22. This context is almost an oh-by-the-way story. And if you read the entire chapter 12, it gets such little attention. It's oh-by-the-way. It's almost missed. But it's important to understand the passage we'll look at where Christ refers to Jonah. Chapter 12 of the Gospel of Matthew, beginning at verse 22. Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and he healed him so that the mute man spoke and saw. All the crowds were amazed and were saying, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? Now, in other stories in Scripture where Christ encounters a demon-possessed person, a person who's ill, there might be a little capture of the conversation. There might be a dialogue between Christ and the individual, Christ and even the demon sometimes. There's a conversation. We have nothing captured here. It's missed entirely in, in Matthew's gospel. But notice he is blind, he is mute, and he's demon-possessed. And the text simply says at the end of verse 23, and he healed him. So his blindness is gone, he's able to speak, and the demon has been removed from him. So Christ has performed this major miracle, and the audience says, is this the son of David? Paraphrased. Meaning, is this the one who would always be on the throne of the Davidic kingdom? Is this Messiah? Now, word travels fast in antiquity. Never get the impression that the Bible in, in first century, they did not understand stuff. We, we look at news feeds, RSS feeds. We look at TV. We have all sorts of ways we get information instantly. It moved very quickly in antiquity. 
uh, around the water source of the water well of the community, the coffee pot, we might say, the community, in the, in the flocks, herds, working. People spread, and news spread quickly in antiquity. And so the scribes and Pharisees, of course, are hearing about this very quickly. A major miracle has been performed. I would argue three. Blind, unable to speak, demon-possessed. Now sees, now speaks, and no longer demon-possessed. Now, I want you to drop down to verse 38 to set the larger context. Matthew 12, 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves, craves for a sign. Yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The Queen of the South will rise up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, Something greater than Solomon is here. First, we want to see the demand for a sign. Notice in verse 38, we want a sign from you. We want, we demand you do a sign. Now, in Mark's gospel, when they demanded a sign of Christ, Mark records he flatly refuses to give a sign. In fact, there's no record. In Matthew and Luke, we have a little different interchange. In Matthew 12, as what we're seeing now with this demon possession, we're all, we also have skipped over one where he has exercised uh, a, a demon and they accuse him of doing it under the power of demonic uh, power. Jesus says a kingdom divided against itself can't do this because they don't want to embrace him. And if you listen just quickly to Matthew 16:4, an evil and adulterous generation seeks a sign and a sign will not be given it except the sign of Jonah. And he left them and went away. So we need to think a little bit, what is this sign they're asking for? What does it mean? How do we understand it? There's a number of signs in the Gospels. This word is different from miracles or wonders. There's a number of these kind of terms in the New Testament. But signs is a very specific term. In Luke 2.12 it's used when the angel says you will go and the sign you will see to the shepherds is a baby wrapped in cloth lying in a manger. That's the sign. So when you get there that's how you'll know This message will have been authenticated when you see that baby laying in a stone-hewn feeding trough. In chapter 24 of Luke, much later, when the disciples are uh, asking about the end times, you know, the end times is one of those topics that about every 10 years it gets really busy in the Christian community. We worry about the coming. Is this the end of the time? Chess pieces. What's happening in Israel? Who's the Antichrist? Those conversations always pop up about every decade, and then people write books, and then it goes away. Uh, But those things, in antiquity, the disciples wanted to know. And they ask in chapter 24 of Matthew, tell us then, when will these things happen? What will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? What's the sign that we know to look for that you're coming back. What are they asking for? We want to authenticate. We want to know what's going to happen. When you go see that baby in that stone-hewn manger, the sign is you're going to see him wrapped in cloth and lying there. Uh, what's the sign for the end times? What's the credibility? Can you prove it? 
Now, in John, he uses sign in a very precise way. Every time it's to authenticate that Jesus is God. Listen to a few. In chapter 2.23, he turns water into wine. In chapter 3, verse 2, Nicodemus has come to him at night. And he says, Rabbi, teacher, we know that you've come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs unless God is with him. Nicodemus has heard and seen what Christ is doing, and he knows they're authenticating. And he says, unless you're from God, you can't do this stuff. John 4.46, we have a royal official. It's after the wedding of Cana, and his son is very ill, and he travels to go see Jesus, and Jesus will heal him at a distance. And in chapter 4.48, Jesus remarks, unless you people see signs, you simply will not believe. I've got to perform for you. I've got to authenticate who I am or you won't believe me. And it's an incriminating dressing down statement to the audience. In chapter 6 of John, verse 14, after the multiplication of loaves and fishes, the people say, truly, this is a prophet who's coming to the world. And listen to what Jesus will say to them in a few verses later. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. You didn't come to see if I was Christ. You didn't come to see if I authenticated who I was. You came to get a full belly. Then he goes on, do not work for the food which perishes, but for food which endures to eternal life. The Son of Man will give this to you, for on him the Father God has set his seal. Therefore they said, what shall we do that we may do the works of God, work the works of God? He said, the work of God is you believe in him. No matter how many signs Jesus would, quote, perform, close quote, would it convince people to believe? Even in that sign, when the multiplication of loaves and fish occur, they just want another meal. It's a great story to spread around, but there's free lunch. And let's go see if he'll do it again. A sign was to authenticate, to prove that Jesus Christ was, in fact, the Son of God, had the power of his Father given to him. Now, we cannot know particularly what sign the scribes and Pharisees want. Show a sign. We don't know what they wanted to see. We can imagine and speculate. But if you think through this a little bit, what do they need to see to believe? They've already seen the story of a deaf, mute, demon-possessed man being healed. They've just before this seen him cast out demons, and they accused him by the power of Beelzebub. What's he going to do? to prove to them unequivocally, and okay, you're God now, I get it. What sign would he perform that would convince them? When we come to God uh, demanding certain things, and we've all done it in different ways, shape, or form, we want God to answer a prayer. We want God to do something for us. God, show us a sign. Show yourself to us. And I think we're well-intentioned, and I think it's okay to ask those things. But if we're to step aside a little bit and think through what's going on, when uh, in 30 years plus of ministry, I'm invited to hospitals. I'm invited to surgical waiting rooms. I have, been, I have seen babies, grown men, uh, people dead on a slab in a hospital. I've gone into a bedroom where children and a husband are on a vigil as mom dies of cancer in the bed. Some of you in medicine and law enforcement have seen many such things. 
And when you walk into those situations as a pastor, it's a, it's a wonderful, terrible, strange, blessed, otherworldly experience. Because the holy man has arrived. Whatever that means. And they always want you to pray. I can remember a vigil for a child who eventually died and this poor young couple was grasping at straws. They would have anyone of any religious faith pray for them. They did not care what, who the chaplain was, what they believed. They would let them anoint, pray over, say things. Uh, what, it did not matter. When you are that desperate, I don't criticize them. But you walk in the room and so somehow Moses has now arrived and can part water. My prayers are no more effective, quote-unquote, than anybody else's. And when we think of effective prayer, we've taken a number of things out of context. Otherwise, if you were an effective person in prayer, most of your prayers would be answered. We're not puppeteering God by how well we live the Christian life and how well we, we pray. And if you're more effective at prayer than me or I more than you, that somehow I'm going to get God to perform for me. But yet we are invited to pray, we're invited to ask, we're invited to knock, to seek, to ask, to persist in our prayer life. But it's because of the relational tie it builds and our intimacy with Christ, not just the outcome of one more sign or one more miracle or one more thing God may or may not do. God may be merciful, but I've stood over countless holes in the ground and watched families put bodies in. We're all going to die. Yet another cheery sermon from Michael. <laughs> God is not this giant Pez dispenser in the sky who spits out candy to his children. The God-man overcame sin. He obeyed perfectly. He died substitutionarily for you and me. We remembered that before we began this service. He loved perfectly and completely. He obeyed his Father in every way. I only do that. I always do that which is pleasing to the Father. He overcame death. And he offers free life to any and all who by faith trust in, by grace, through faith, they trust in what he's done for them. But the problem is we're focused on a full belly. God, I want this thing. It's not bad to pray for that thing. It's not bad to pray for your children. Not bad to pray for your sick child. Not bad to pray for any of those things. It's good. We should pray for that. We should beg God for mercy and plead and intercede. But that's only a small part of the Christian life. One wonders would anything have satisfied them. He's going to turn water, or has, turned water into wine, walked on a, a water, calmed the storm, multiplied loaves and fish. He's healed with a word, healed from a distance. He's cast out demons. He's given new eyes to a congenitally blind man. He's healed a woman who just touched the fringe of his cloak. He's um, raised Lazarus from the dead. He's going to raise himself from the dead. Will any of these signs be sufficient? Jesus' answer in verse 39, he answered and said to them, an evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign. Yet no sign will be given except or but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart 
of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up with this generation at the judgment and condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. First of all, he's not going to perform on demand. He's not going to just do, oh, okay, what sign would you like me to do? It's not a magic show. He dresses them down by calling them an evil and adulterous generation. This is not Dale, Car Dale Carnegie's book. You're an evil and adulterous generation. Why, does he, why is he so hard? Well, he knows their critical hearts and skeptical minds. Uh, he calls them adulterous because of their duplicity. They're, not, they're immoral spiritually, and they're not following the law of God that they were given. The scribes and Pharisees were to be the keepers of the law, the ones who saw that people were taught and understood God's word and understood mercy and justice and kept the sacrificial systems going and understood how to love God, but instead they turned it into their own religious system. He knows they've rejected him already. He knows they're trapping him, trying to trap him, trying to set him up. And so Christ is going to remind them, uh, first of all, of Jonah. Jonah is a type, an illustration of. Just as Jonah was three days and nights in the belly of a monster, so will the Son of Man be dead and buried. Now Jesus also marshals two historical figures that the scribes and Pharisees would know very well. One is Jonah and one is the Queen of the South. If you're a Bible study person, if you like to study Scripture, and I hope you all become that. If you are not, I want you to see something. This is one of the easiest parallels to see that you'll ever see. It's so easy. Verse 41 and 42 are almost identical parallel systems. The men of Nineveh will stand up. The queen of the south will rise up. See it? Verse 41, with this generation at the judgment and condemn it. Verse 42, with this generation at the judgment and condemn it. You can't miss it. They're repetitions. Because they repented, verse 41, at the preaching of Jonah, therefore something greater is here. Because she came, verse 42, from the ends of the earth to hear his wisdom, the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon here. So what's he doing? He's using two historical figures that they would identify with. They would know the story of Jonah, and they would know the story of the Queen of the South. He's saying that the people of Nineveh on a sermon preached by Jonah, completely repented, and they're believers. We call them Christians. And they're going to stand up with this generation, with this evil generation. They're going to stand up and say, you're judged because you didn't believe. We didn't get to see any of the things you saw. We just responded to what we heard. You've got to see things no one else has ever been able to see. And you don't believe. The Queen of the South came from the ends of the earth. The picture is, how far would you go to find this information? And she hears Solomon's wisdom, and she's changed because of it. And she'll stand up, which is interesting, Jesus' commentary on the Queen of the South, that she was a believer. She'll stand up with the people of Nineveh and judge this evil generation because they, they understood with this much information the Jews of that first century had this much information, and they rejected him. And so he's hard on them, calling them an evil and adulterous generation. By the way, when Jesus uses Jonah as an example here, think of the implications of that. Jesus is citing the story of Jonah being in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. 
In other words, it's not a parable. It's not a bedtime story. It's not an allegory. Jesus says, just as Jonah was in the belly of the sea monster for three days. We call this internal textual criticism, meaning Jesus corroborates the words of the Old Testament. Jesus believed Jonah. Jesus believed that Jonah was a real figure. Jesus believed Jonah was in the belly of a fish three days. Jesus believed Jonah was spit out. And he uses that as an illustration to say, that's the sign you get to see. Why? A sign authenticated or confirmed the message or the messenger. Christ is saying, you're going to get to see me come back from the dead. And you still won't believe me. This generation had seen things no other generation had ever seen. The sign of Jonah, rejection, death, burial, and resurrection. So what? Uh, miracles will not convince people. Plain and simple. Miracles will not convince people. Miracles are wonderful. They're fantastic. They're great. I love them. Um, I, don't, I don't think we should not, not pray for miracles. But the problem with a miracle or a sign is it's not, it wasn't intended the way we view it. When Christ performed signs and wonders and miracles, when Moses brought Egypt out under the miracles of God, when Elijah and Elisha performed miracles, there was an authentication of whose God, the whole story of Exodus, whose God, Pharaoh or Yahweh Elohim? And those signs and wonders were to authenticate Yahweh Elohim was the only true God. Elijah and Elisha's miracles are up against Moabites and Canaanites and all the Baal worship and Asherim worship. Whose God, those gods or Yahweh Elohim? When you come to Christ's time, who's God? The religious constructs of the Jew or Jesus Christ? When you come to the New Testament, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the remotest part of the world, who's God? The gods of the world or Jesus Christ? The signs and wonders were to authenticate this is from God. Not to make the person more important. When the disciples returned after seeing all the miracles because God empowered them to, Jesus warns them, be glad in that, but rejoice that your name is in the book of life. Not that you got to see signs and wonders. What makes people believe? What makes men believe? Self-described cynics, atheists, agnostics. I saw on the news this week, apparently there's a new congregation. I don't even know why they call themselves a church or congregation, but it's a, a congregation of atheists, sort of oxymoron to me, but uh, meeting in Nashville, bless their hearts. Free country, do whatever you want. I mean that entirely. Free country. You want to sit around and pray to nothing? Go for it. I think I'd watch TV first, but there you have it. Um, how did they get there? And what would make them believe? If we put them all under truth serum and bright white lights, I suspect we would find some injustice in their past, some wound, disappointment, betrayal, and that amalgamated and congealed to this big thing, and they said, there cannot be a God. And to be compassionate, I get that. To be theological, we're missing the point. We live in a fallen context. Bad things happen. It does not change the fact that God's real or alive because he didn't give you the pez when you hit the button or didn't give me the pez when I hit the button. Christ fulfilled the law perfectly. Man-made religions are a system of do's and don'ts. Christ is perfect in every way. He resolves it once for all. You don't have to be perfect with the do's and don'ts. Praise God. 
I dislike greatly the word should and shouldn't. Christ excludes no one, but men exclude Christ because they will not believe. The account of Luke 16, don't turn there, is a great story to illustrate this with Abraham and the rich man and the poor man, Lazarus. The poor man is in heaven in the picture, and the rich man is in the flames of, of hell. And he's talking to Father Abraham, asking Father Abraham to cool and quench his torment. And he bargains with him, and, and he wants to send someone to his brothers. Listen to just part of it. No, Father Abraham, if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to them, if they did not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. And Jesus uses that illustration to say, when he comes back from the dead, some of them will still be unconvinced. I have learned over the years to ask God for big things when I am in those vigils with people. And it, again, it is a holy, wonderful, terrible, blessed, otherworldly experience when you're waiting in the balance for someone to live or die and you're praying with people and reading Scripture. Um, it's one of the most wonderful, miserable parts of life. And I learned years ago, hearing lots of people pray, they want God to do a thing. Show up, God. Not a bad prayer, not a wrong prayer. And being the holy man called to come in, I learned years ago to pray this. God, I know you are able my question in prayer is, would you be willing? I don't doubt that God's able to use surgeons' hands and medical professionals to save lives. I don't. It's a wonderful thing to pray for. But if he doesn't, did he fail? Did he not come through? We all die. Praise God. Amen. Joyful. Maranatha. Jesus. Be happy. You're going to die. We spend so much energy making this world heaven, and it's not. It is not. Rather than pray for a miracle, which you're, you are free to do, don't listen to me. Pray for all the miracles you want. Pray for them. Don't listen to me. I give you permission. I learned years ago, for me in my house, I ask God not merely for a miracle. I ask him for an immovable faith. Because bad things are going to happen. Disease will come. Disappointments will occur. People will break your hearts. They will take advantage of you. Your children will wreck your emotions. Your grandchildren will patch a lot of that up if you live so long. <laughs> you'll be passed over. You'll lose your job. You'll have health issues. Your friends will betray you. Your father or mother will come out later in life. Is God sovereign? Yes. Is man sinful? Yes. And we are an evil, wicked generation. So I pray with the smile of confidence in God's future, not mine. This earth is not my home. We're sojourners. We're pilgrims. We worked so hard. I say it too often, but this life at best is a clean bus station. And we're trying to make it a palatial mansion. Your bus station might be a little nicer than mine. But it's just temporary, and it's always uncomfortable. Ask him not merely for a miracle, 
asking for an immovable faith that no matter what comes your way, you'll trust Him, you'll rest in Him, He knows what's best. Yes, we pray for mercy, we pray for grace. You don't need a sign or a miracle to believe in Him. If He never did one more thing but save you, would that be sufficient for your Christian life? I don't think He's that kind of God, but I often settle there. If all that He's done for me, quote all, is forgive me of all my sins and grant me eternal life in Christ in the heavenly places forever with Him, why would I whine? People of God, lift your chin and look at your future, not just the present. He loves you. He saved you. He died in your place on your behalf instead of you. He is the sovereign king. No matter what happens to this wicked generation we're watching, with dismay and the most bizarre time of my life is watching our country right now. I've got to smile at the future. No matter what happens, he's sovereign. And we're not. Father, help us to be the people you want us to be. Thank you that Christ not only believed in the story of Jonah, but he used it to illustrate his own life, death, burial, and resurrection. Those who never got to see that believed in God and are co-heirs, and some who have seen it and heard it and experienced and all since then in salvation history who've heard the stories and embraced it are all part of that inheritance. And we will stand along with believers and watch a generation that rejected God and Jesus Christ. We pray for those who've been devastated by the typhoon, for those who've lost lives, obviously nothing we can do, but for those families shattered and fractured who have lost everything. May men and women of good faith who love Christ be able to share with them not only the physical, material, medical needs that will help, but the spiritual remedy that apart from Christ, we are all a day away from the next tsunami, the next earthquake, the next typhoon. Help us to live with joy and hope and anticipation, not with depression or discouragement, because you've won the victory, and we are merely soldiering on day by day. We pray this in the matchless, powerful, sovereign name of Christ. Amen. God bless you. Have a good day.